0: Let us pray. Almighty Father, who gave your only Son to die for our sins and to rise for our justification, give us grace so to put away the leaven of malice and wickedness, that we may always serve you in pureness of living and truth. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. We now come to the 25th chapter of the book of Acts, and the next two lectures or sessions will cover a rather significant portion of Scripture. Um, It's a temptation to split this up, but really once you read through it, it becomes quite obvious that the whole section was meant to go together. So we are going to go ahead and read through a significant portion of chapter 25 and chapter 26, And then we'll come back and look at these things in closer detail. So, chapter 25, beginning at verse 13, and then through the end of chapter 26. So, bear with me, and if you have your Bibles, you'll want to go ahead and you'll want to open them up as we read through this section. Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa, the king, and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in this case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss... How to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man, about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving of death, and as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him. Therefore I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. And Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being first the, and by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing deserving death or punishment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar." If you recall, the last time we were here, we talked about the fact that the Apostle Paul had already been in prison for two years in Caesarea Maritima. He had been falsely accused and arrested in Jerusalem. He'd been sent off to Roman headquarters Caesarea Maritima, north of Jerusalem, northwest of Jerusalem, really. And it was there that he stood trial before the Roman governor at the time. At that time, the Roman governor was Felix. And we said that Felix was intrigued by Paul, he was curious about Paul and the things that Paul had to say, but he was the consummate politician. Uh, He did not want to upset the Jewish leaders, and furthermore, he was a very corrupt individual. He was hoping that by keeping Paul in custody, Paul, or one of Paul's disciples perhaps, might offer him a bribe. But he was so corrupt, his entire administration was characterized by dishonesty and graft, that he was eventually called to Rome. And we said that he probably would have been executed had it not been for the timely intervention of his brother, who was high in imperial circles. What happened next was that he was replaced. He was replaced by a new Roman governor, a man by the name of Portius Festus. And when Festus arrived on the scene, he was determined to be the polar opposite of his predecessor. His predecessor prevaricated, refused to make decisions, was characterized by graft and dishonesty. This new governor was determined to come in and clean house. After all, that's what he had been sent there to do. The former governor had been recalled by the emperor Nero, who was by no means a man of great moral character himself. So we know that Felix had to be really bad to get recalled by the, the emperor. So when Festus arrives on the scene... He wants to get things in order. One of the first things that he discovers is that there is a Roman citizen. A man who has Roman citizenship, which we said was a great honor in the first century, a great privilege, really, in the first century. And this Roman citizen had been held in custody for two years. He'd been tried, but no decision had been rendered. And so the first thing that he wants to do is he wants to hear Paul for himself. And he has the Jewish religious leaders come down from Jerusalem Paul stands trial before the governor and explains the situation to him, at least his side of the story. And of course, the Jews had the opportunity to present their side of the story. And when it was all said and done, the governor was more confused at the end than he was at the beginning. He was new to the area. He hadn't been here for very long. In fact, we're told that he arrived on the scene. He'd only been there for a few days when he summoned Paul before him. And he listens to what Paul has to say, and he quickly realizes, as his predecessor had, that Paul had not broken any Roman law. Certainly he hadn't done anything that was deserving of death. And so what he tried to do was to make the problem go away. He asked Paul if Paul wouldn't like to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before his own people. Now Paul knew what this meant. Paul knew that he would never make it to Jerusalem. There was already a plot afoot which was hatched by the Jewish religious leaders themselves, people who should have known better than this, to have Paul assassinated. So Paul knew that he didn't stand a chance, and he knew what the governor was doing, and so he exercised his right as a Roman citizen, and that right was what? To appeal to the emperor himself. That was the right of a Roman citizen, to stand trial before the most powerful temporal ruler of the day, Now, you have to be very careful about that sort of thing. Christians were starting to be persecuted at this point in history, so Paul was really taking a risk, but he knew that if he didn't take that risk, his life was forfeit anyway. And so he appealed to Caesar. And the emperor, no doubt, or the governor, no doubt in frustration, replied, well, to Caesar you have appealed, very well to Caesar you will go. Paul was then taken down to his cell to await the time when he would be transported to Rome. At which point, you could just imagine what's starting to go through the mind of the governor now. What am I going to say to the emperor? The emperor of Rome was a powerful man, the most powerful ruler on the face of the earth at that time. He was a busy man. The Roman Empire was vast, it was far flung. You just don't send prisoners up to the emperor to interrupt all of his important business on matters of religion. And if you are going to send somebody up there, you better explain why you're doing it. The reason why the emperor had governors was that the governors were supposed to take care of these matters and not trouble Caesar. And so the governor realizes he's in a Precarious situation. He's got to send a charge along with Paul. Paul Paul's exercised his right. He can't deny that. There were witnesses to this. But he has to send some sort of explanation. And the problem is, he doesn't understand any of this. He's not a Jew. He doesn't understand the finer nuances of the Jewish religion or the Jewish law. So what is he going to do? And that's where we pick up the narrative today. It just so happens that traveling through this area, through Caesarea Maritima, at this time, was King Herod Agrippa. Herod Agrippa and his traveling companion, this woman named Bernice. Now, who is King Agrippa? Well, King Agrippa is part of the long line of the Herods. There was originally one Herod. And then that name, Herod, became sort of a title, in the same way that Caesar. There was Julius Caesar, and then everybody else adopted the title. Same thing for Napoleon. There was originally Napoleon the Bonaparte, and then what happened? Well, everybody else that came after him claimed to be Napoleon. They were directly related to him in many instances, but they, they claimed the name, the title, Napoleon, Emperor of, or Emperor of France. Well, that was the case with the Herods. There was a whole long line of them. This one was the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was a notorious figure. He's the most famous of all the Herods. He was notorious. He was notorious as a very cruel man. Now, he was a great builder. If you go to the Middle East, if you go to the Holy Land in particular today, many of the sites that you go to visit, uh, the great palaces or the great seacoast fortifications, many of these were built by King Herod the Great. Paul's on trial here in Caesarea Maritima. Those of you who went with me to the Holy Land a year ago, you'll recall that we went to Caesarea Maritima, and that was a fantastic harbor that had been constructed there with a lighthouse, and and there were places for chariot races and all that sort of thing. All of that was built by Herod the Great, and it was one of the wonders of the ancient world. Uh, Herod the Great was also responsible for the construction of the temple in Jerusalem, which again was considered to be one of the great wonders of the ancient world. It was made of polished stone. It was massive. It was impressive, so much so that when the sun was rising and reflecting off of that polished stone, you could not even look at it. You had to avert your eyes because it was so brilliant. If you've ever been to Masada, that hilltop fortress and palace, that had been built by Herod the Great. He was a great builder. He loved to build things. And many of the monuments of antiquity are things that Herod had built. But as I said, he was probably one of the worst villains in all of history. Uh, He didn't have the opportunities that Adolf Hitler had or Joseph Stalin or Mussolini had, but he was every bit as bad as any of them. Um, He is known to have had two of his own flesh and blood sons strangled to death, and he had one of his wives executed and all because he thought that they were plotting against him. So he was a cruel man, he was an ambitious man, and he had a long streak of paranoia that ran through his character. This is one of the reasons why we're told when wise men came from the east, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, they came seeking the king of the Jews. We're told that they went to Herod and inquired as to where the king of the Jews was to be born. And when Herod heard about that, he hatched his own plot to have this newborn king destroyed. He said, well, you go and you find the new king. I've consulted with my experts, religious experts, and they said that the new king is to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. You go there and you find him and come back and tell me so that I may go and worship him as well. But it's made very clear he had no desire whatsoever to go ahead and worship the newborn king. He wanted to destroy them. And, of course, he did try He had all of the little boys under the age of two slaughtered in Bethlehem. We call it the slaughter of the innocents. That's this man. Wouldn't you like to come from that kind of a family line? Well, that's Herod Agrippa's grandfather. So his grandfather is Herod the Great. His father is Herod Agrippa I. He's not much better than his father. He was the one who was responsible for arresting Peter and the other apostles, and he was the one who was responsible for the death of the first. He was responsible for the death of James. So this is a very cruel family line. He's also well-connected, not only in terms of his own family, but in other families. He has alliances that have been established. He is the brother of Drusilla. Who's Drusilla? Do you remember Drusilla? We talked about her earlier. She was married to the first Roman governor before whom Paul stood trial here in Caesarea Maritima. Felix. We said that she was just a young girl. Remember that? Only in her teens when she had an adulterous relationship with the governor. She was already the wife of another man. And she left him because she was a social climber. So this this is the family. If you think your family is bad... Just think about the Herods sometime. And he is the brother of this woman, Bernice, who accompanies him on this trip. So this is the man before whom Paul is going to stand trial, before whom Paul has to expect fair treatment. You know, you can't always expect fair treatment in the world, can you? Jesus didn't get fair treatment. It's a wonder that we expect that we are going to get it. Now, it needs to be said that compared to his father and his grandfather, this Herod was actually pretty good. At least he didn't go around killing anybody. But he was, rumor had it, living in an incestuous relationship with his sister, Bernice. So he's by no means a model of virtue. And Paul is going to stand before him. Now, I love the way this scene is described. It's it's, it's brilliant, and you have to sort of use your imagination. Uh, I wish I could go back, perhaps I can, to the scene that we saw just a moment ago in the picture that I put before you. Take your Bibles and look again at Acts chapter 25, beginning at verse 23. Because Herod was traveling through this area, the governor thought that it would be helpful to have Agrippa interview Paul. Agrippa was friendly with the Jews. He was, in fact, a Jew himself. And whereas the governor did not understand any of the nuances and, as I said, the finer details of Jewish religious laws, Herod Agrippa certainly would have. He would have understood these things very well. And so the governor enlisted him in the hope that he would be able to explain the circumstances when he set off these charges to Caesar. And I love the way, eventually what happens is the king agrees to do it, sure. I'll be glad to listen to him. Whatever I can do to help, I'll be glad. So bring him in. And this is where we pick up the narrative. And you can just look at that image up there on the screen. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. And they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Imagine that scene. They came with great pomp. When you think of pomp, what do you think of? Pageantry, don't you? I don't know about you, but I think about the changing of the guard at Buckingham Palace. Nobody does pageantry the way the British do pageantry Those men, the Coldstream guards in their red tunics and their bearskin caps and they come marching behind the drums and the trumpets and their flags and all that sort of thing. Man, we fought a war to get rid of the queen, but you know, there's a little part of you that just wants to invite her back. You You want to go back home to mother, don't you, when you see that sort of thing. Nobody does pageantry like the British. Well, that's the way the Romans did it. And it was a sign of their imperial power. It was a sign of their influence. It was an impressive thing. You can see the king sitting there, and he's got his crown on his head, and he's no doubt dressed in his purple robes. And there's the governor, no doubt dressed in his scarlet robes, which a Roman governor would have worn on all state occasions. And we're told that there were leading men of the city. These would have been merchants. These would have been powerful, property, wealthy people. In addition to that, we're told that there were military men. The commanders of the cohorts, there were at least three cohorts that would always have been in Caesarea Maritima at any one time. That's the equivalent, I suppose, of a military battalion today. About 1,500 men, high-ranking military officers, powerful, influential people, rulers and kings. And they came with great pomp. Great pomp, great pageantry. Very different from what we see elsewhere in Scripture. They came with great pomp. How do Christians come? Take a look at Matthew chapter 6. And Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. We are so impressed by this sort of thing, aren't we? We find it to be absolutely fascinating, and yet what does Jesus say? It's all going to pass away. It will not Last, it's a great collect in the Book of Common Prayer that says, even now while we are placed among things that are passing away, help us to cleave to those things that shall endure. I think it's interesting, the word here that is translated as pomp, it came with great pomp, is the Greek word phantasia. It's the word from which we get our term Fantasy. Now, I don't know if that was just the word that Luke decided to use because that was the word, but I rather suspect that he was saying something else in the midst of this, because what a contrast it is. Here are these powerful, influential people, and in comes the prisoner, and who's the prisoner? The apostle Paul, who's been in chains for two years, who's been imprisoned. Paul, who's in the late afternoon of his glory by this point. He's no doubt an older man, and he suffered a great deal as a consequence of being one of Christ's apostles. He's been beaten with rods, he's been publicly flogged, he's been in and out of prison, he's been in danger, and I'm sure he was bearing the scars of his ministry on his body, and he was not a very impressive man. Paul himself acknowledges that fact. I don't know how you imagine the Apostle Paul, but when I imagine Paul, I sort of imagine him as sort of this short fellow, he's a little short Jewish man, sort of balding, perhaps squinting. Because there's some indication that he suffered from eyesight problems. You just imagine him coming in, and here he is surrounded by the world with all of its pomp, all of its pageantry, and what Luke is saying is, it may be a stark contrast, and from a worldly perspective, this is what's impressive and this is what is not, but this is what is actually passing away. This is fleeting. It does not last. It is mere fantasy. And this, though it is despised in the eyes of the world, this man Paul He is made of the stuff that endures forever. If you think about it, it's true. How many of you, until you started a study of the book of Acts, or until you read through the book of Acts, had ever heard of Agrippa, or Drusilla, or Bernice, or Festus, or Felix? You may have heard of Festus from Gunsmoke, but other than that, (laughs) you probably never heard of Festus or Felix. But how many people remember the Apostle Paul to this day? We all remember the Apostle Paul, one of the most influential people to have ever lived. There's a wonderful old hymn. It goes like this, Zion stands by hills surrounded, Zion kept by power divine. All her foes shall be confounded, though the world in arms combine. Now, that was Paul, surrounded but kept by a power divine. It Remind me, reminds me of the story of the author, uh, Julian Duguid, who was traveling from Britain to America, to Canada, actually, North America, on a ship. And he found himself traveling with Sir Wilfred Grenfell, who was one of the great medical missionaries, uh, a great man of God, who became a medical missionary, in many respects a a hero as a missionary to the native people of Labrador. Just a remarkable fellow. And Julian Duguid said that when he first met him, he was not impressed by the man at all because he was not a particularly impressive figure. He was small of stature. He was quiet in terms of his demeanor. And yet he said after the first day, after the first conversation with him, he said there was not a time during the entire week's passage coming across the Atlantic Ocean that he didn't know when Grenfell was around. He said, I could tell that he had entered the room without even seeing him for there was a power that issued forth from the man. There was a power that issued forth from the man. Well, you see, that's what happens when Christ And God, the Holy Spirit, takes possession of a person's life. There is a power there. What's the word for power? We've already seen it in the book of Acts. It is the word dynamis, the word from which we get dynamite. It's an explosive power. And Paul possessed that power. And he had that power with him when he stood up to make his defense. Now, what was Paul's defense? Well, we've read through it. We'll take it apart bit by bit. There are basically three parts to Paul's defense. And you have to be patient here because in many respects we've already heard this story before. What Paul basically does is he tells the story of his conversion. Now, as I said, we've already heard this story before. We heard it back in Acts chapter 9, historically, when Paul was actually converted on the road to Damascus. It was laid out for us. And then we hear it again when he stands trial before the other Roman governor. And now here he is before Agrippa, and here he is before Festus, and he's telling the story again. And you say, Luke, how many times are you going to tell this story? Evidently, Luke thinks it's important enough to tell, not once, not twice, but three times. And I think he's right. I would go so far as to say that the two events that are most significant in the history of the church are the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and the conversion of the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. And I think this is Luke's way of emphasizing that fact. So Paul basically tells us his story. First thing he does is he talks about his life in Judaism, about what it was like for him. And he makes that point very clear. He says that he had been raised as a Jew all of his life, He had been raised as a Pharisee, devout from youth, part of the strictest party of Judaism, and he admits the fact that he himself had actually opposed the name of Jesus Christ. So Paul wants the governor and he wants the king to understand he is not some religious zealot, He understands the charges that are being brought against him. And he admits the fact that it is hard to believe this message of Jesus Christ. He said, I was one of them. I understand where they're coming from. But he wants them to understand that the reason there's been a change in his life is because something has happened to him. Paul wants them to understand that he is not the man that he was. Have you ever had that kind of a change? Have you ever had such an encounter with Jesus Christ that you are no longer the man or the woman that you once were? I was talking to somebody not long ago, and they said, I've been raised in the church all my life. And I never really understood what it meant to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Come to church on Sunday. I'm going to talk about this in the sermon. In the sermon, Jesus talks about The importance of bearing fruit. Now, we had part of that last week. Andrew talked about that in his sermon. The importance of fruitfulness. One of the things that you'll notice in that 15th chapter of John, and I don't want to give away the whole sermon because you'll say, well, I've already heard it, but (laughs) is that there's a progression of thought. And once you get to the end of the section, Jesus says that he wants them to bear fruit, but he also wants them to bear the kind of fruit that lasts. The kind of fruit that abides, which implies that there is some fruit that does not. And he makes it very clear the only way that you can have the fruit that lasts, that endures, is if you abide in me. As a vine and a branch abide with one another. Well, abide implies a connection. It's about being connected. It's not about proximity. It's not about being close to Christ. It's about being connected to Christ. The New Testament describes the essence of salvation as union with Christ, It's being united with Christ. And Paul says that is exactly what happened to him on the road to Damascus. Something happened that united him with Christ forever. We call it conversion, but that conversion resulted, Paul says, in a great commission. In this connection I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests and at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me and when we had fallen to the ground I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. I love that expression, kicking against the goads. It's the first time in the way that Paul's Conversion has been told where we get that expression, kicking against the goads. You know what it means to kick against the goads? In an agrarian culture where they oftentimes worked around livestock, which was very dangerous, there were times when you would get a stubborn animal, and the animal would not want to do what you wanted it to do. And so the person normally had a long, sharpened stake or pull, which was called a goad. And what you do is you would goad, you would poke the animal to get it moving, You're goading me. Well, that was the idea. They were goading the animal. But every now and then, the animal would become violent, frustrated, and it would kick against the goad. It was a bad thing for the animal to do. It would do harm to itself. But that's the way it was. Paul says that he was on the way to Damascus. He said, I've been living as a Jew. I was zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. I understand what these people are saying. I understand that they see Christianity as a damnable deceit, and so did I. He said, in fact, when I was going to Damascus and God spoke to me, he told me that I was what? Kicking against the goads, which tells us that God the Holy Spirit had been working on Paul all along, but Paul had been fighting against it. Are you fighting against God? You ever find that to be true in your own life? Kicking against the goads? I love the way that C.S. Lewis and G.K. Chesterton and others have described God. They've described God as the hound of heaven. That once he gets your scent, you can run. But he's going to run you down. I see, that's what Paul was saying. Hound of heaven got my scent. And there on the road to Damascus, he ran me down. And he gave me a commission. He gave me a job to do. He gave me a purpose in life. And of course, the result was that Paul went out and he changed the world, didn't he? He really did. He said, I went out and I was not disobedient to that heavenly vision to go out and proclaim the gospel among the Gentiles. You know, obedience is one of the signs that you've truly been converted. You know, sometimes people will say, well, I I hope I'm converted. I hope I'm saved. I, I hope I'm in union with Christ, but I'm not sure. How do I know? Well, Jesus says you'll know them by their fruits. I mean, even if you're not an expert in horticulture, If you go by and you see apples hanging off a tree, chances are that's a what? An apple. It's not a pear tree, is it? It's it's an apple tree. Now, how do you know that? By its fruit. You see loquats hanging off a tree in Charleston? Pretty good chance. It's not a magnolia. Pretty good chance that's a loquat tree. We know them by their fruit. And Jesus said, you will know them by their fruits. And one of the fruits of conversion is obedience. Now, good works do not lead to salvation, but good works are the fruit of salvation. And because we're talking about fruit, and I'll hit on this in the Sermon on Sunday, because we're talking about fruit, it is something that you don't work at. A tree that is healthy will produce fruit. So if a person is in union with Christ, there will be fruit, and one of the fruits of conversion is obedience. And that's why Paul says, having been converted, there on the road to Damascus, having been united with Christ, he says, I was not disobedient. I followed. I was obedient. Obedient in preaching the gospel. Now, there's no doubt about the fact that Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus was a world-changing. It was a life-changing event for him, of course, but as a consequence of his life being changed, the world was changed. You and I are sitting here in large measure today because of what God did in and through the life of the Apostle Paul. Otherwise, the gospel might very well have been restricted to the Jews. The fact that it went out to all the world and fulfillment of the Lord's Great Commission is in large measure due to the Apostle Paul. Back in the latter part of the 18th century, early part of the 19th century, there were two men, I've talked about them before, Lord George Little <coughs> and Sir Gilbert West. They were both attorneys uh, in the 18th century, and they were products of the uh, Enlightenment. They were reason, uh, reasonable people, people that place an emphasis on reason. And uh, they both were convinced that Christianity was untrue. Like so many others, they were basically deists. They believe that there may have been a creator God, but he was like a, a great clockmaker that wound up the universe and set it in motion, but that was the extent of his involvement. God did not intervene. He did not perform miracles. He did not part the waters, and he certainly didn't raise people from the dead and convert them. And so these two men, in the name of reason, decided that they were going to go out and discredit the claims of Christianity. Now, how do you do that? Because there's so many aspects to the Christian faith, so many aspects to the Christian gospel. How do you go about doing that sort of thing? Well, they decided to zero in on two events in particular, which they regarded as the twin pillars upon which the Christian faith stood. And if they could pull out either one of these pillars, the whole thing would come down like a house of cards. Now, what were those twin pillars? One was, as I've already said, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If you, if you can pull out that pillar and show that Jesus never did, physically, bodily, rise from the dead, the whole thing's over. But the other pillar, they said, that if you can't get at that one, the other one that you can get at is the conversion of the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. If you can really prove that what, happened, what Paul claims happened to him never really happened to him, then you can discredit his entire ministry as a consequence. And so these two men made a pact. They were gentlemen. They were meeting at a club. They made a pact. Sir Gilbert West was going to go out, and he was going to work for an entire year as an attorney, a man with a legal mind, a keen mind, a rational mind, and he was going to find all the holes in the story of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The other one... Or George Littleton decided to go out, and he was going to attack or dismantle, if you will, the story of the conversion of the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. A year later, they would come back together, and they would meet, and they would discuss what they had found, and they intended to publish these things in a book. And Littleton, because he was an English lord, had the money and the influence to do it. So they went off their separate ways, and a year later, true to their word, in those days, gentlemen were true to their words, they came back together again. And Sir Gilbert West was a little sheepish. He was actually reluctant to go and meet Littleton because in his attempt to dismantle the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, he actually got converted through his studies. And he was afraid that he would be ridiculed by his friend. What he didn't know, is his friend had been studying the life and the ministry and the conversion of the Apostle Paul, and he had come to the conclusion that the only thing that could have turned around the life of somebody like Paul, a systematic murderer who was out there trying to dismantle the Christian faith, and now became its greatest advocate, the only thing that could account for that was an act from God. And he was converted as a result. And those two men met, they shared their common stories, and they published their book. Still available. It's now combined into one volume. You can get it on Amazon, like everything else. You can look it up: Gilbert West, Lord Littleton, *The Resurrection of Jesus Christ and the Conversion of the Apostle Paul on the Road to Damascus*. Still available today. But it's interesting. As Littleton was going through, he found that there are any number of things that could have happened to Paul. Paul, he said, could have suffered from epilepsy. Some people have suggested that. There on the road to Damascus, Paul was suffering from epilepsy and he had some sort of a fit. Others have suggested that it was a hot day, It the road to Damascus. We're told the sun was shining all about them. Perhaps Paul had a sunstroke. Harry Ironside, who was for many years the pastor of Moody Church in Chicago, said, well, if that's epilepsy and that's sunstroke, why don't we all have epilepsy and all have sunstroke? He said, in fact, probably trying to be funny, he said he did suffer from sunstroke, just not S-U-N, S-O-N. He was struck by the Son of God, and he would go out and he would preach the gospel. So the first part of Paul's defense here is his life in Judaism and what happened to him on the road to Damascus. I think this is a great example for you and for me. Oftentimes we feel inadequate to go out and be witnesses, don't we? We feel that we really can't go out and do this in the same way that a pastor or a rector or a clergyman can do this. Where We're not that articulate. We don't have that grasp of the scriptures. But if you are a Christian, the fact remains that God has been at work in your life. And if you are united with Christ, you have a story to tell. And it is your story. It is your story to tell. And nobody can come along and say, as Lord Littleton discovered, it didn't happen to you that way. It's your story. And oftentimes those personal stories are the most compelling. So if you want to know how to go out and share the good news of Jesus Christ, one easy way to do it is to simply tell people what happened to you. We love to share good news, don't we? Let me tell you what happened with my my children. My son's graduating from college in a week. He's going to law school in the fall and he's getting married in August. There you go. And his dad will be bald by September. But at any rate, but I love to share this story. Why? Because it's good news. It's something that happened to me. Now, why should I think that you'd be even remotely interested in that? Except because hopefully you you like me a little bit and you think, well, because we like him, sure, we're happy for him. Well, if God has worked in your life and transformed your life, why not share that? That's the most wonderful news of all. And nobody can say, now, wait a minute, it didn't happen to you that way. Well, let me tell you, you weren't there, and I was, and that's exactly how it happened to me. And it can be very compelling, very challenging, and it can make all the difference. And that's what Paul was doing here. That's what he was doing. He was telling his story. But then he goes on to talk about the content of the gospel. That's the second part of his great defense. The content of the gospel that he preached, verses 20 and following he says first of all christ is the fulfillment of the prophets he said the gospel that i preached is the very gospel that the prophets in the old testament that these people are accusing me of undermining it's the very message that the prophets themselves proclaimed that one day a messiah was going to come and i'm telling you that messiah has come it's that messiah that i encountered on the road to damascus That Messiah then suffered and died. If you want to know what the gospel is, you know, people oftentimes talk about, well, that's the gospel truth. Here's the gospel. Paul is telling us what the essence of the gospel is. Well, people say, well, Jesus changed your life. How did Jesus change your life? Here's a way to tell them. These are the major points. God came down in the person of Jesus Christ. The human race was a mess, and God promised that he was going to send A savior, a rescuer. And how did he rescue us? He rescued us by suffering and dying upon a cross in our place to pay the price for our sin. That's that's the message of the gospel, you see. And that what? That same Jesus rose again from the dead. He did die. He did suffer. He was buried, but he didn't remain there. And that Christ then called unto himself, this risen Savior, others, to be lights, to go out and tell the world of what he had done, that people should repent, that they should repent and believe the gospel. And now we proclaim the mystery of faith. Go ahead and say it. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. That's the content of the gospel. You see, you know it already. What is the content of the gospel? Christ has died. Died for what? For the sins of the whole world. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son to the end that all that believe in Him might not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus becomes the sacrifice for our sins. By His stripes we are healed. But He didn't remain in the grave. Christ has died. Christ has risen. He defeated sin. He dealt with death. And he is going to come again, and he's going to set everything that is broken, everything that is unjust in this world, right. There will be justice. All shall be right with the world, and God shall wipe away every tear from our eyes. That's the good news. Your guilt and your shame have been dealt with. There's nothing that you need to do in order to get into God's good favor except to believe on what Christ has done. Place your faith in him, and you will be united to the vine. And one day that Christ will come again and he's going to set this world with everything that is foul, everything that is unjust, right again. That is the gospel. And therefore, Paul says, people should repent. What does it mean to repent? The Greek word metanoia literally means have a change of mind. Have a change of mind. Change your mind change your worldview, change your attitudes, change your priorities. And once that happens, it'll change your life. Yes, it is to turn. It is to do a U-turn in this respect. And how do you know that somebody has repented? Well, we've already seen with the Apostle Paul. They prove their repentance by their deeds. Now, what I love about the way Paul does this is that he puts the emphasis on everything that Jesus did. This is one of the unique features of Christianity. As Christians, the emphasis, and you'll see this in the Gospels, is not so much on what Jesus taught. Now, of course, we have wonderful teachings by Jesus. The parables are a great example of this. And we have the Sermon on the Mount. That's a great example of Jesus' teaching. But one of the things that you'll find focused on in the Gospels is not so much what Jesus did. I mean, Jesus did say, love your neighbors as you love yourself. But are you aware of the fact that Jesus was not the first person to ever say that? Well, why should we listen to Jesus rather than to somebody else if he was just repeating what other people have said? We listen to Jesus more than anybody else because of what he did. The reason why we listen to Jesus is because he died and rose again, and nobody else has ever done that before, and as a consequence, we better listen to him. And we better change. This is no mere philosophy. That's what's so powerful. Paul is talking about a real person in real time in real history. Somebody came up to me just a few days ago, and they said, I love the fact that you always bring history into your lectures or history into your sermons. Well, ours is an historical faith. This is not philosophy. If you take Buddha out of Buddhism, you've still got Buddhism. If you take Moses out of Judaism, you've still got Judaism for the most part. But if you take Jesus Christ, the person, out of Christianity, the whole thing falls apart. John Stott said, Christianity without Christ is like a a frame without a picture. It's like a casket without a jewel. It's like a body, he said, without breath. There's nothing there. This was a flesh and blood Savior, a crucified and risen Savior, and a Savior that demands, demands a decision. We all, every single one of us, have to make a decision about Jesus Christ. He doesn't leave any other option open to us. C.S. Lewis put it well. He said, You either think Jesus is the Lord, or you think Jesus is a liar, or you think Jesus is a lunatic on the level of a man who thinks he's a poached egg. But he said, Those are the only options open to you. You can spit at him and condemn him as a demon, or you can fall at his face and call him Lord and Master. But what we cannot do is come with any patronizing nonsense about his being merely a great moral teacher. He said he never left that option open to us, and he never intended to. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Does our world find that offensive? Does the world find it offensive for somebody to say that there's only one way, only one truth, and only one life? You better believe it in this world... We want to have many ways, many truths, many lies. But the question is not whether we like it or not. The question is whether or not it's true. And what if it is true? If it is true, then it demands, you see, a decision. And that's exactly what Paul does. I love, Paul is a great salesman. He goes for the sale. And that's exactly what he says. Look at verse 27 of chapter 26. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? Goes for the sale, doesn't he? He's preached the gospel, but then he issues the altar call. Every eye is closed, every head is bowed. We're going to sing one more stanza of Just As I Am. King Agrippa, are you ready to come forward and give your life to Christ? Listen, you cannot be neutral about Christianity. You're either all in or you're all out. But there's no middle way. The book of Revelation says that Jesus would rather us be hot or cold, but if we're lukewarm, we get spewed out. Hot or cold, but not lukewarm. How many of you like hot tea? How many of you like iced tea? Who likes lukewarm tea? We are forced to point of decision. You either. Jesus is either Lord of all, or someone has said he is not Lord at all. So where is Jesus in your life? Is he Lord of all? Or not Lord at all? Well, it's interesting to notice the response of these two men when Paul goes for the sale. Verse 24, and as Paul was saying these things in his defense, Festus. That is, the Roman governor said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Translate, stop, stop. I am a Roman governor. I am an educated man. And you're talking about people dying and rising from the dead. Stop. This is foolishness. This is madness. You are out of your mind. All of this that you've been through has driven you crazy. Is that what the world says about us? (laughs) What? Do you really believe that God comes down? Do you even believe that there is a God and that he should come down and that he should die upon a cross and that he should rise again? And we're expected to believe this? You are crazy. You are out of your mind. We are 21st century, postmodern people. We don't believe that sort of thing anymore. See, he's saying the same thing that Paul heard. And so Paul, realizing that the governor is going to not believe this. What does he do? He turns to King Agrippa. He says, "Ah, Now, King Agrippa, I know that you're Jewish, at least. I understand that the governor is not particularly interested in these things, and that's understandable. But you know better. How about you? Do you believe the prophets? And then Paul says this. Paul answers the question for him. He says, I know you believe. So what are you going to do about it? And what does the king say? And the king said... Do you, in such a short time, believe that you could persuade me to be a Christian? When I imagine this scene, now that the governor's blurted out, this is crazy, this is mad, nobody believes that stuff. And then Paul turns to Agrippa and he says, now, king, I know that, I know that you're, you're a Jew, I know that you understand these things, you believe these things, I know you believe these things. And you can just imagine the king looking over there at this important figure, this Roman governor And being embarrassed because he doesn't want to answer. And so what does he do? He says, Paul, do you you really think you you could just persuade me? uh, Just this listening that I I should become a Christian? No, no, Paul. And so what we notice is that both of these men perish, don't they? As far as we can tell, they both perished. But they perish for two different reasons. Festus perishes for pride of intellect. He wants to be perceived as an intellectual man. and The Christian gospel seems anti-intellectual and so he resists it. And Agrippa perishes for pride of position, for pride of place. He has a reputation to uphold. And he doesn't want to be perceived as a religious zealot, a nut, an extremist. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 and following. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, To those who are being perishing, those who are dying, the message of the cross is foolishness. Stop! Stop! It's a stumbling block to others. Do you think you're going to be able to persuade me right here and right now? But to others, it is the word of salvation. What about you? Is this foolishness to you? Is this a stumbling block to you? Is your Christian vocation, your Christian life, an embarrassment to you in the presence of your friends? Are you all in or are you all out? There's no other place. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the Apostle Paul. We give you thanks for his defense, for these powerful rulers of his day. They came with great pomp, but that pomp is a thing of the past. It faded away. Indeed, even the Roman Empire now is just a a faded page in a history book. But the gospel is alive and well. Your church continues to grow and to prosper. Grant us the grace, Lord God, to see the gospel, which may be foolishness to the world, a stumbling block to many, but grant us the grace to embrace it, to embrace it completely, mind, body, and spirit, and to give everything we have for the sake of Jesus Christ, who died and was raised again, and who gives us the hope of everlasting life. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.